1 Peter, uh, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Go ahead and grab a seat. Morning, everyone. Uh, if it's your first time here uh, this morning, or if you're tuning in on uh, on Facebook or online, uh, I'm uh, uh, Pastor Chris, and I left my notes over there. <laughs> um, so if you have a Bible, <laughs> go ahead and grab it and turn to First Peter. Uh, my name is Chris, and uh, I have the exciting privilege uh, of launching a brand new series uh, through this great book of the Bible, uh, through the book of First Peter. Uh, if you've been around uh, with us for the last couple of years, you know that starting a new series, beginning a new book of the Bible, is like one of my favorite things to do. Like, I love when we get to begin a new journey through a book of the, the Bible. And if, you, if you're new or, or, or tuning in for the first time, it might be helpful for you to know that uh, our normal flow is to uh, go through books of the Bible verse by verse over the course of weeks or sometimes uh, or oftentimes months uh, in, in what has historically been known as, as expository preaching. Uh, how many of you guys have, have heard that phrase before, expository preaching? Uh, expository preaching uh, basically means that uh, our goal in preaching, uh, the goal of the preacher is to expound, to dig into the text or the passage and to expound upon what's going on in that passage of Scripture. Uh, to give credence to the context of the original audience, uh, to give credence to the contents, uh, context of that passage and that book within the whole Bible, uh, to give credence to the context of this passage of Scripture within uh, the, just, just the whole of human history. And then we, by doing that, uh, working backwards, almost like reverse engineering from there to best figure out what that text is actually saying. And only when we go there can we then figure out how do we apply it to our lives today. Uh, and so I love when we get to start a new book of the Bible. We're going to be in First Peter uh, this uh, this morning and uh, over the next uh, several months, uh, and it'll be the first book uh, that we've gone through that's written by the Apostle Peter. Um, now, regarding the book of First Peter, I want to read to you a uh, just sort of a, as an introductory sort of preface. I want to read to you guys a couple quotes, uh, one from a uh, relatively contemporary uh, uh, scholar and one from an older scholar. Uh, the first quote is from uh, a man named Edmund Clowney. Uh, he passed away recently, uh, but uh, he's been alive within the last century. Uh, he's actually the guy that taught Tim Keller how to preach. Um, so if you love reading or listening, podcasting to Tim Keller, uh, you can thank Edmund Clowney for that. Uh, and Edmund Clowney says this about the book of 1 Peter. He says, in all the New Testament, 1 Peter is the most condensed summary of the Christian faith and of the conduct that it inspires. And so he's saying, look, first Peter is just chock full, jam packed. It's a condensed, compact, compact version, uh, a sort of summary of what Christianity teaches and how Christianity should be lived out. A few centuries before him, uh, the great reformer Martin Luther says of uh, the book 1 Peter, he said that it is one of the noblest books in all the New Testament, that it contains all that is necessary for the Christian to know. Very similar, uh, uh, very similar heart towards this book uh, as, as Clowney. Uh, high praise, right? Hard praise from Martin Luther. Now, now, why would these two men make such sweeping statements about such a small book? Five chapters. 
Five chapters. If you have a Bible in front of you right now, you can you turn to First Peter. You can just move over a couple pages and get to the end of the chapter. Why would these guys make such sweeping statements about such a tiny book? And and the reason is because it really is immensely practical. It is a very practical book, and it's so realistic and honest about our common human uh, experience. It's realistic about how life is in this world is often full of hard stuff, full of what we might call trials, tribulations, suffering, brokenness. Uh, it's really honest about the hard stuff at life, which if, 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 if we're all honest with ourselves, that's where we want to know how faith applies uh, the most, right? It's through the hard stuff. And it tells us, First Peter is not only honest about the hard stuff, but it tells us how to live with resilient Christian hope in light of that hard reality. And so that's why we're calling our series Resilient Hope in a Restless World. Every single sermon is going to t- somehow point to this theme of resilient hope in a restless world. Now, you might be thinking, uh, man, we're going to be in this for like months. Like, uh, can we talk about other things? Uh, and what, what I want you to see is that this sort of mega theme in the scriptures and in First Peter, resilient hope in a restless world is an inexhaustible truth. Much like a diamond uh, that you hold up to the light, no matter what kind of angle you look at it, uh, you can find different elements of its beauty as you turn it around. And so um, this book, we're going to go deeper and deeper into, we're going to see that it is a letter of hope, a timely letter for hope uh, in this season of life that we're all living in. A letter of resilient hope. It's the hope that everyone longs for. Christian resilient hope is the hope that that is written on every heart. It's the kind of hope that every uh, person longs for. Every single one of us knows about this uh, idea of hope, right? Like we all know, like there's no person that doesn't uh, uh, that doesn't wrestle with or long for more hope. We hope in the little stuff, right? Some of you woke up this morning and said, "You know, I hope the Lakers beat the Nuggets tonight." <laughs> I woke up this morning and I thought, I hope it's not as hot this week as it was two weeks ago, <laughs> right? Uh, standing up here. We also hope in the big stuff, right? Like, I hope, I hope this pandemic ends soon. I hope our businesses and our schools open up soon. I hope with my job that I don't get laid off or furloughed. Uh, or if I, that's already happened to me, I, I hope I can pay my next bill. I hope my friend or family members uh, don't don't get 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 COVID or or die from COVID. My 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 uncle uh, in the Philippines uh, just passed away from COVID uh, within uh, just a couple weeks ago. And we're and we're thinking and we're saying like, man, I, I hope that our family member, I hope that that he got to know Jesus before he passed away. We don't know. Right? We hope for little things. We hope for big things. We can't escape. None of us can escape this idea of longing for hope. And Peter, the apostle Peter, who wrote this book of the Bible, he recognizes this yearning for hope in a restless world. And so he's writing to his audience as a group of Christians, uh, and he's writing to them with a good word of encouragement that our hope is alive. It's a living hope. It's a transcendent hope. And for the recipients of this letter and for you and I today, we need to learn right now to how, how to live now in light of that living hope. And that's the backdrop of this entire letter. All right? That's the backdrop of this entire letter. That's the reason that Peter is writing. In 1 Peter 5.12, which is the very last verse of this letter, he ends by saying that all of this, all this talk of hope, he says, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And so everything that we're going to be talking about in this uh, book of 1 Peter is something that, that Peter wanted Christians uh, receiving this letter to stand firm in. It's something that he wants us to stand firm in. It's something that the Lord wants us to stand firm in. 
And so for this morning, I want us to get acquainted with this book. And we're going we're gonna to get acquainted with Peter and the recipients of this letter. And what I want you to see this morning, the big idea of the first two verses of 1 Peter, is that knowing who you are in the grace and peace of Jesus makes all the difference in your pursuit of resilient hope. Knowing who you are, in other words, your identity, as it relates to the grace and peace, very important uh, themes in the Bible, grace and peace of Jesus, knowing who you are in light of those two things makes all the difference in your pursuit of what we're calling resilient hope. Would you go ahead and pray with me, and then we'll go ahead and start and read those first two verses. Father God, we thank you uh, for uh, this book of the Bible. We thank you for the scriptures that we can have and that we can hold uh, and, and, and read and study and encounter the truth, wonder, and beauty of our Lord Jesus. We thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to gather here in person today, to gather online. Uh, we thank you again, Lord, for the Hatter family and their great hospitality that they've shown us in letting us use their home uh, for uh, this service uh, on the Lord's Day. And uh, we just pray, God, that as we dig into your word this morning and in the months to come, in the book of First Peter, uh, uh, we just pray, Lord, that you would uh, just, just, just drive that word into our hearts. May it spill out into hope in our lives uh, that is a witness to others, all for your glory and for the good of our neighbors. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Read the first two verses with me at First Peter. <laughs> it says, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace, there's those two words, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now that is quite an introduction to a letter, right? We don't write letters like that anymore. Right? Now let's, let's peel the layers of these two verses uh, to get better acquainted with the author of this letter, uh, Peter, and his audience and why he's writing to them, okay? So first, let's talk, who is Peter? Who is Peter? Who is the author of this letter? Uh, we see in the first few, few words there, it says, Peter, an apostle... Of Jesus Christ. How many of you are familiar with that word apostle? Apostle essentially means messenger. It's a messenger or an eyewitness of uh, the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what an apostle is, right? It's somebody who's a messenger, but uniquely an eyewitness messenger. Okay, now, now it's helpful to understand that those who were receiving this letter from Peter, they were likely familiar with his biography. When he writes to them, he says, hey, this is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, they understood uh, his background, his history, his biography. And so for those of us that might be new to the scriptures or new to the faith, I want to kind of give a, a Cliff Notes version of Peter's story. All right. Uh, so Peter is what we know as one of the 12, right? One of the 12 original disciples uh, that would eventually be called the 12 apostles, the 12 eyewitness messengers of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Uh, now what's unique about Peter, because all of the apostles, they, they, they were a diverse uh, kind of ragtag group of guys, right? Uh, they had very diverse backgrounds. But the thing that's striking about Peter is that he was a really normal dude, Right? He was a very normal uh, guy. Uh, uh, he was very much driven by his passions and emotions at times, uh, which probably for many of us makes him one of the easiest of all the disciples to identify with. On his worst days, he disagreed with Jesus a lot in the scriptures. He denied even knowing him. In the book of Acts, his racism starts to show. 
uh, that he's guilty of. And on his best days, he's planting churches, preaching to crowds and writing books of the Bible, just like First Peter. He's an ordinary man used in extraordinary ways. A uh, imperfect man used in great ways to become a world-changing servant of Jesus. A little bit more about his background is that he was not formally educated, right? There were some guys uh, that followed Jesus around, some of his original disciples that had more of an educated background, right? Jesus was not only a carpenter, uh, but he was also uh, a, like a rabbi or teacher of sorts. Uh, and usually the kind of people that would get taught by uh, a rabbi or teacher like Jesus is somebody who was likewise also kind of educated in the, the minutia of, of the faith. And so uh, P- Peter was not one of those guys, though. He was not formally educated. Now, that should uh, speak a word of encouragement to many of us uh, here uh, this morning. Because it tells us that you don't need you don't need a lot of ministry experience. You don't need theological credentials to leave a holy mark on the lives of other people for the glory of God. Right? Some of us uh, who might be younger in the faith might be thinking like, man, if I just knew more, if my, if my prayers were more eloquent, if I knew more doctrine, if I had more training, if I did more Bible studies, then I could make a difference for Jesus. Peter is an example that that's not true at all, right? God picks uh, the most ordinary of, of people to do the most extraordinary of Things. Peter was a he was a married man. He he had a wife uh, that we we read about in at least one place in the in the New Testament. Uh, he also owned a small fishing business, right? Uh, he he had a brother uh, named Andrew who was also a disciple of Jesus, uh, and Andrew was actually a follower of John the Baptist, uh, or, or some of us might know him as John the Baptizer, right? Uh, because he had no denominational affiliation, right? Uh, so John the Baptizer, right? Andrew was a follower of, of him, uh, and uh, or, or Andrew was. And so when God providentially brought Andrew and John the Baptizer together, he also brought, God also was bringing Peter and Jesus together. You see the sovereignty of God at work in their relationships, that Peter uh, was specifically selected to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, Why is all this information important for us to know? You see, it's important for us to know because you need to know that Peter is writing. He's writing all this talk about resilient hope and about the truth of the gospel and its power for everyday living. He's writing as someone who's had a close relationship with Jesus. He's writing as somebody who had access to him in unprecedented ways. Now, in in the year of COVID, some of us get like a tick on our shoulder, right? Like when we hear that word unprecedented, right? These unprecedented times, right? But like truly, in the best and most wonderful of ways, Peter had an unprecedented uh, relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He spent three years of his life with Jesus, which doesn't seem like a long time, right? Uh, 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 like, especially like the older you get, you know, three years doesn't sound like a long time. But when your life is radically upended, like it was for Peter when he left his fishing business to follow Jesus, every day for three years is a long time. Right? When our lives were upended by this quarantine, by this lockdown, Right? If we were told that this was going to last for three years, you'd be like, that's a long time. Right? So Peter spent three years, which a long time, every day with Jesus. Uh, he learned directly from Jesus. If Peter had a Bible question, it's like he got to go straight to Jesus. Right? That's, that's, some, pretty, that's some pretty impressive uh, access right there. He was a firsthand witness. He was right there, a firsthand witness to Jesus' ministry. He was there watching demons get cast out. He was there watching the dead get raised. He was there watching the sick get healed. He was there when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount and all the other sermons that he preached, gathering crowds on hills and in valleys and on mountaintops and on shorelines. He, uh, he was there for every single me- message, for every single miracle. 
And he was not only one of the 12, he was also, Peter was also one of what we call the three. All right? Jesus' closest companions, his best of friends, his BFFs, Peter, James, and John. So he had really close access and proximity to Jesus during some of the most amazing moments of Jesus' ministry. There's a time we read about in a couple of the Gospels uh, uh, called the, the Transfiguration, uh, where, where Jesus walks up uh, this mountaintop, and he brings only three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, to go up to this mountaintop with him. And only there, uh, with the, these three companions, does Jesus appear in the fullness of his glory. He's shining white like the sun, uh, and, he's, and Jesus is so being exalted, he's so being glorified, that Moses and Elijah, two Old Testament prophets that have been long dead, uh, appear in their resurrected states, uh, in, in their spiritual states, uh, there with Jesus. Peter was one of three men. That got to witness that. He was there for some of the most amazing moments of Jesus' life. He was one of the three, uh, Peter, James, and John, were the three that were invited by Jesus specifically to pray with him in the Garden of Gethsemane during the, the hour of uh, his uh, arrest and betrayal. He would eventually become a senior leader in the church, a veteran church planter. Uh, a, a, and that's what it meant to be an apostle. As an eyewitness uh, messenger, uh, you spread the gospel and you planted churches. In the Old Testament scriptures, we read about the prophets uh, that, did, that, 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 that brought the message of God, right? And, and kept uh, God's people uh, together in the word and on mission in the word. In the New Testament, that's the role of the apostles. That's what Peter was. And uh, the apostles were also uh, the ones who, who wrote uh, the New Testament. Um, and that's why Ephesians 2.20 tells us that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In other words, uh, uh, Ephesians is telling us that all the writings of the Old Testament prophets and all the, the writings of these New Testament apostles, that is the foundation of, uh, of our faith, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, all right? Now, Peter's writing this letter. He's writing this letter uh, 30 years, uh, roughly, give or take. He's writing this letter 30 years after Jesus' ascension, all right? Um, so by the time he's writing this, he's like a seasoned pastor, right? He's got gray hair. He's been serving uh, many churches. He's planted many churches. He's, tr he's traveled all over the ancient Near East. So he's a really seasoned pastor and church planter by the time that he's writing this letter. So needless to say, knowing Peter's background and how long uh, he's been serving churches, it was a precious thing for believers to receive this letter from the Apostle Peter. And I hope by the added weight of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we get to see that it is a precious thing for us as believers in the 21st century to have the words of Peter graciously preserved for us throughout the centuries so that we uh, can learn about this inexhaustible, resilient hope. He's writing, Peter's writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit to encourage Christians with his own eyewitness testimony. You'll notice in various forms and fashion that he, throughout this letter, uh, keeps repeating uh, that, that he was, uh, that he was, that he was there, you know, he's like, I was there, I saw there, like, I, I experienced this, I was there with Jesus. He was there face to face throughout Jesus' life and ministry. He was there when Judas betrayed Jesus. He was there when he fell asleep and woke up only to find Jesus being arrested. 
He was there uh, when they unjustly tried and framed Jesus before a sham trial, before an unjust court uh, system. He was there when Jesus was crucified. And he was there when Jesus rose and ascended on high. And so when Peter talks to us about resilient hope, he knows a thing or two about that. All right, so that's who Peter is. That's who Peter is. Now, now who is it that he's writing to? Point number two, who is he writing to? Verse one, uh, the, the, the rest of verse one uh, says, uh, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of what he calls the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now he's writing to, to this, this group that he calls the dispersion spread throughout this region. All right. So he's writing to a dispersed church. In other words, a church that is now spread out. Okay. These churches that have planted and grown and, and, and broken off and spread out. The picture we need to have here is that uh, from 30 years earlier, when Peter was first ministering and starting the first churches, to three decades later, churches have grown, they've broken off, they've multiplied, churches have planted churches that have planted churches, they're spreading and growing and multiplying. And look, it'd be good for you to know if King's Cross Church is your home, or if you're thinking about praying to make King's Cross Church your home, like this is why we are passionate about the work of church planting. We believe that the world needs more churches. Even the fact that there are already like a handful of great churches here in the Saddleback Valley, like we believe that, the, the, that every community needs more uh, churches because we're going to need churches of different sizes, of different flavors, of, of, of different demographics to reach all different kinds of people, right? Now, and we believe that there are people in every community from here on this street to the unreached uh, areas of the world, that there are people that the Holy Spirit is working on. And so that's why churches gather. That's why they scatter. Uh, that's why they, they, they plant. Uh, and that's why we, we, we live out our faith, not just when we gather together, but also when we, we kind of go out. There's a sense in which we disperse uh, throughout our community and into our homes throughout the weeks, right? That's why, that's why we really uh, harp on and, and, and try to get you to, to join a home group uh, here at King's Cross. Because home groups are the primary vehicle that we have uh, to help you grow in your faith, get acquainted with the scriptures, uh, grow in what we, again, what we call biblical literacy, uh, to grow in grace and to have accountability in your Christian walk. And he calls, he, he, he names the region uh, of this dispersion. He says, the dispersion in, in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Uh, now, now, most of us, when we read that, we're like, hey, I, I recognize Asia, <laughs> but not any of those other names. And that's because most of those other names uh, the, uh, don't, don't exist uh, today. But it's basically what that region is what we would consider like most of present day Turkey. All right. Present-day Turkey. By the way, you should pray for Turkey, right? Like the, the, the Bible tells us that we should be praying for our brothers and sisters who are go, undergoing uh, persecution. And, and, and Turkey, uh, even though it was sort of like ground zero for the spread of Christianity, currently it is only, it is only zero, zero, or, or 0.002% Christian. That's wild, right? steep decline over the last 2,000 years. They're, they're, they're experiencing uh, great persecution uh, uh, due uh, just to uh, just this nationalism going on in, in the area. Uh, our, our, our church planting network, Acts 29, uh, our global church planting network that we belong to, uh, has three churches uh, in, in that region. Uh, and so, some of them are just like just a handful of people because of the persecution that's going on. Um, 
Actually, if you guys wouldn't mind, can we stop right now? Let's let's pray for the church in Turkey. That sound good? Uh, let let let's do that. Uh, Father, we, um, Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters uh, in uh, the nation of Turkey, in the region that was uh, that we know as the ancient Near East, that was once just a a, a swelling sort of ground zero, <laughs> a beginning point uh, for Christianity. Man, what a legacy of the gospel faithfulness that we saw in those early churches, planting churches that planted churches, making disciples that made disciples. We are in many ways spiritual descendants of those early Christians that were so faithful to the Great Commission. And so we pray, Lord, that only by a miraculous, supernatural work of you, Holy Spirit, uh, for uh, revival to bubble up and for gospel renewal, for new working, new uh, just uh, work of church planting uh, uh, to swell up uh, in Turkey. That more people that you're you're calling and pursuing might come to saving faith in our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. And so Peter, Peter, he's writing to these dispersed Christians to encourage them with a message of resilient hope. He introduces that theme of resilient hope in these first two verses. First, by calling them, in, in this verse, by calling them elect exiles. Now that phrase, that title he gives them, elect exiles, is a wonderful phrase. It's a loaded phrase. And it's true of every Christian, all right? So when we talk about, about being elect, about him writing to these elect exiles, I need you to understand throughout this entire series of 1 Peter that you are by definition an elect exile as well. And I'll, I'll describe why in a moment. But this question that I want you to, to, to ask yourself right now, or that I want to ask you rather, is who is it that you think you are? Who do you think you are? Do you know your identity in Jesus? Peter calls this group of people, these group of Christians, he refers to them as elect exiles. A very important phrase in regard to their identity. So I want us to break down now that phrase, elect exile. First, let's look at that first word, elect. Elect. Now, if you're a Christian, you need to know that you were elected by God before the foundation of the world. Or in the words of uh, the book of Ephesians, you were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Now, admittedly, this is a very controversial very confusing idea in historic Christian theology, right? Like, what do you mean we're chosen by God? Like, I, I, I remember my conversion experience. I chose God, right? Like, like, I chose Him. And the Bible doesn't say that there's not a sense in which we chose Him, right? The Bible, but the Bible does say that God foreknows, predestined, called, chose us before the foundation of the world, right? And you might be thinking like, well, if that's true, then none of us are, can be responsible, held responsible for, uh, uh, for, for following Jesus. But no, that's not true, right? Because the Bible does also teach that although God is sovereign, we are also responsible, okay? Now, you and I don't have to understand how that math works out, Right? We're not expected to because we're creatures and God is creator. And so there should be some things about the way that he is, his character, his nature, the way that he works in his created world. There should be some things about him uh, that should just boggle our minds. We should expect that. You see, but some people try and put God in a box. We, they they want to force him into ways that are, are more understandable. And they'll say things like, no, God looks through time and, and he chooses only those that will choose him. That's how they interpret verse 2 that says that this is done according to the foreknowledge of God. But the problem with that is that the Bible says that no one seeks God. No one desires him apart from his grace. 
One of the places we read that is in Romans chapter 3, verse 11, where it says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. God doesn't choose those who would choose him. God chooses those who would never choose him. Right? You need to understand that if it were not for the saving grace of God, none of us would ever choose him. God chooses undeserving rebels, those who suppress the knowledge of him and who, who wield their will against him as, as, as enemies. We don't love first God loves first. We don't choose first. He chooses first. We don't pursue first. He pursues first. This is amazing grace. Right? Now, some of you that were with us last year know we went through this series uh, through what, what's historically called the doctrines of grace, where we really dug into, uh, uh, we really got into the weeds uh, on uh, the, the scriptural um, sort of footnotes for uh, these, what they're, what's called the doctrines of grace and, and ideas like this. And so if that's something that um, you want to, uh, that's maybe new to you or that you want to learn, learn about, you can go back and, and check out that sermon series. We incidentally called it Amazing Grace. What's so amazing about the doctrines of grace? And, um, or you can text in a, a question uh, about that and we'd uh, love to walk you through that. So, but this is Amazing Grace. The fact that we are elect. You see, I'm not deserving. I'm in no way deserving, but I'm loved. I'm loved not because of who I am, but in spite of who I am and because of who he is. I don't get the glory. I get none of the glory. He gets all the glory, right? Now, some of us, some of us admittedly, uh, uh, you know, have to admit the hard truth that like we bemoan that we were never chosen for anything, right? Uh, like me, you were never picked on the handball court growing up. Uh, or you, maybe you, you bemoan the fact that you weren't picked for that job. You weren't picked for that relationship. But man, but by God, <laughs> but by God, the one who matters the most, where it matters the most, you were chosen before that foundation of the world. That's what makes the doctrine of election so wonderful, so mind-boggling, so beautiful. And he calls them not just elect, but elect exiles. All right? Elect exiles. Let's talk about that word, exile. Now, when he calls them exiles, they're not literal exiles. Like, they weren't booted out of their land. They weren't kicked off of their property. This is more of a figurative exile. It's a way of Peter saying, look, you're like strangers in this world. You're like strangers in this world. How many of you can relate to that feeling? How many of you have this sense that this world is not your home? And that no matter what you try to make of it, the things of this earth will eventually fade or will never quite satisfy just the deep, deep longings of your soul. Have you ever had that feeling? It doesn't where this world doesn't feel like home or doesn't function like home. And that's because it's not. It's not home. If you are in Christ, if you belong to him, if you are a worshiper, a follower of him, then this world is not your home. This creation is broken and it is not your home. You were made for a new creation. And we have different values than this world. We have different values, different loves, and a different king. You see, when you became a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, when you became a Christian, you entered a war, right? A war against Satan, against sin, against all that has fallen and broken in this world. And that's why... Life in this world sometimes feels uphill. That's why you feel unsettled at times. I love the way that this is articulated uh, in one of my favorite songs. Um, local band that, that actually made it big, Thrice, uh, based on Irvine. That they have this song uh, off of the Beggars album called In Exile. And in one of the verses, um, 
uh, or as I, actually, I think it's the chorus. Um, they say, it says these words. It says, my heart is filled with songs of forever, of the city that endures where all is made new. I know I don't belong here. I'll never call this place my home. I'm just passing through. Beautifully articulated. This, this, this idea of, of that feeling like this is not your home. That we're made for something more. You see, when you follow Jesus as Lord, you become an outcast in this world. Just like Jesus was. You become an outcast in our nation. You become an outcast in some sense in your neighborhood. Some of you have become an outcast in your family. You feel the pressure, this unsettled pressure from those around you in these different spheres of community. You feel this pressure to conform to the patterns of this world. And that is unsettling. The Bible talks about two kinds of per persecution that a Christian can experience. There's physical persecution, which is uh, the, most, uh, the, the most heartbreaking kind. But there's also ideological persecution or verbal persecution, which is, which is also difficult in its own right. One seeks to take your life. The other seeks to take your joy. It's important to understand our identity as elect exiles, right? To be considered an elect exile is an honest assessment. We are exiles. In other words, life in this world is hard, right? To die for Christ is hard, but to live for him is hard too, if we're honest. But it's also not just an honest assessment, it's also a hopeful assessment. Because we're not just exiles. We're elect exiles. We are saved. We have a future home. We're chosen before and loved before the foundation of the world. I love the way that Paul Tripp uh, kind of expounds upon this idea of living as an elect exile. He says, if the hunger for paradise is wired into your heart, and it is, Either you will realize that this present life has been designed as a preparation for the paradise to come, or you will do your best and work your hardest to turn the present moment into a paradise that it will never be. But you and I live in a broken world that right now will not be the paradise that we seek, that we long for and hope for. You and I are flawed people living with flawed people. And collectively, we have no ability whatsoever to deliver paradise to one another. Every place you go and every creative thing you handle has been damaged by the fall. This simply is not and won't be the paradise that you seek. But regardless of that truth, I love the way he says that, but regardless of that truth, people and societies and cultures are constantly trying to create that paradise and that utopia in the here and the now, aren't they? People put their hope in other people. People put their hope in material things. People put their hope in, in, in maybe their home or other social, their community, their social environments. Or maybe they put their hope in a social or political movement. Or they put their hope in legislation or political party. Regardless of where it is that you've placed your hope, by now you've learned that it never sticks. It never fully satisfies. And so Peter he wants his readers to find resilient hope in the fact that we are what he calls elect exiles. All right? Now I want you to read verse, uh, verse, 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 verse 2. Now, at the beginning of verse 2, he says uh, that he's writing to the elect exiles in the dispersion. Uh, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Again, he's focusing on this fact that this is God's choosing, not ours. Uh, elsewhere, you need to understand this. This foreknowing 
uh, this is a, this is a wonderful truth. It also says that Jesus was foreknown, right? Jesus's life on earth and his ministry on earth, his death and resurrection was also foreknown. That means that before God made the world, he knew that humanity would sin. He knew that we would jack it up. And he knew that he would get involved in our mess and come to save us. Man, that's what makes his grace so much more amazing, right? The gospel's not God's plan B. It was foreknown, all right? He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and he continues, and in the sanctification uh, of the Spirit. Sanctification means to be set apart, to be made holy, right? To grow in grace, uh, to, to grow in what it means to be set apart uh, by God and for his purposes. In the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. This is Peter's way of saying, look, what God has done in and through you, uh, 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 or in and, th- in and through Jesus for you, is by the power of God, in the sanctification of the Spirit. You see, a Christian is a person that is not only chosen, but is also being renewed and transformed to be more like Jesus. All right? You want to have assurance of your faith? then you want to see sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, growing and being renewed and transformed by the gospel. And he continues and he says, and for sprinkling with his blood. Now that's kind of a morbid phrase, right? What does that mean? And for sprinkling with his blood. What what does this blood talk about? Now, his audience, Peter's audience, would have understood what he's talking about about when he said sprinkling with his blood because uh, they would know about Peter's Jewish history, right? And blood always typified, pointed to the stark reality of death in, in, in Jewish history and then, and then at this point in Christian history, right? So blood always typified, it always pointed to the stark reality of death. This idea, this teaching that everything and that everyone that lives will eventually fade and die. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. The reason things die, the reason people die, is because sin has infiltrated the world, beginning with humanity and reverberating throughout all of creation, right? And the wages of that sin is death. Now, in the Old Testament, blood was sprinkled on a sacrifice, right? Or a blood was from a sacrifice was sprinkled at the altar with the sacrifice uh, for sin, right? It was sort of a, a, a metaphor to say that that uh, in order to fix just the the the, the problem of death uh, uh, and the problem of sin. Uh, there needs to be a sacrifice, a spilling of blood uh, to atone for this. And so when he talks about the sprinkling of Jesus' blood, that's the way of Peter saying that Jesus is that sacrifice for us now. Right? So when they heard this talk about sprinkling of blood, they, they, they would know that Peter is talking about how Jesus replaces that old sacrificial system. Jesus is the one who dies in our place for our sins. What the Bible calls the new covenant. Right? We read about the new covenant from Jesus' mouth in Matthew 26, verse 28. When he, he's, he's introducing communion to them, and he says... Uh, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. His blood is now the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. His blood is the blood that covers our sins. Basically, when Peter's saying obedience to Jesus and sprinkling of his blood, Peter's saying, look, you've been saved by Jesus' blood to be like Jesus in his life and ministry. You've been saved by Jesus to be like Jesus. Now that's a different definition of what it means to be a Christian than what many of us are used to, right? That's what it is. You've been forgiven of your sin. 
You've been saved by the blood of Jesus to be like Jesus, to walk in his ways. N.T. Wright describes this uh, this way. He says, uh, Christian holiness consists not of trying as hard as we can to be good, but of learning to live in the new world created by Easter resurrection, the new world that we publicly entered in our baptism. How many of you have been baptized into the faith? And if you're here this morning, you're not raising your hand, we got to fix that, right? You see, when you baptize, your baptism, you were uh, united with, in Christ and in his, in his death, when you came, went down into the water, if you were baptized the right way, right? If you were baptized, uh, if you were immersed uh, in baptism, you were united in his death, and you rise, uh, it, you, you're united with him in his resurrection to walk in what the Bible calls newness of life. That's what the Christian life is. You die to your old self, and you walk in the new. Christianity is not a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? It's not just, I died to my old self, right? Now let me in. And it's not just, hey, I'm going to do good things and like prove myself to the Lord and impress him. No, it's all by Jesus. It's all for Jesus. You died to your old self to walk in the new. That is the Christian life. It's living a life of resilient hope as one who is in chosen as, and loved is what the Christian life is about, empowered by the Spirit to live as one who's set apart for God's purposes in the world. To no longer live for ourselves, but to live for the glory of God and for the good of others. Amen? Now, lastly, number three, why is he writing to them? Why is he writing? We talked about who Peter is. We talked about who he's writing to. But now, why is he writing? Uh, Peter concludes his introduction with a short benediction. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Why is Peter writing this letter to these dispersed uh, elect exiles? He's writing so they might get better acquainted with grace and with peace. Grace and peace. That's where resilient hope comes from. From grace and peace, two divine gifts that ground the elect exile in a restless world. What is grace? Grace is the unmerited favor of God. It's the very reason that we're here. It's the very reason that we know God. And it's all that we have. All that we have is grace. What is peace? Peace is the reconciliation that we all need. As rebels and enemies of God, we need peace with God and peace with one another. We were at war with God, but now we're reconciled. We were at odds with God, but now we're adopted into his family. Peter and Paul, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you'll notice that they begin every one of their letters with this benediction or prayer when they say, grace and peace be with you. Do you know why? Do you know why they begin with that? It's because grace and peace is what we need the most. And we get both of them through Jesus Christ the Savior. Peter knew the sweetness of grace and peace more than anyone. He knew the grace and peace more than anyone. If you're familiar with Peter's story, you know that in Jesus' final hours, he denied Jesus three times. He was ashamed of Jesus because Jesus was betrayed and arrested and going on trial. He didn't believe uh, uh, about the resurrection and the victory that Jesus taught, taught him previously about. So he was ashamed to be associated with Jesus. He denied Jesus three times. But after the resurrection, Jesus, in an extension of grace and mercy and peace, comes up to Peter and gives Peter an opportunity to be redeemed. He says, Peter, do you love me? And he says, Peter goes, of course. And then he says, okay, then feed my sheep. And then he asks him again, do you, like, do you love me? Do you really love me? And then Peter says, of course, Lord, of course I do. And he says, then feed my sheep. And then Jesus asks him a third time, Peter, do you really love me? 
Do you love me more than anyone, more than anything? And Peter says, yes, of course, Lord, of course, I love you. And then he says, then feed my sheep. Jesus was not only redeeming Peter, but commissioning him in that moment. He says, if you love me, then I'm going to pass the baton to you now, Peter. I want you to be my representative in this world. I want you to feed my sheep with the hope of the gospel. This letter, 1 Peter, is a fulfillment of that call to feed the sheep. Peter preached one of the first sermons after Jesus ascended on high at Pentecost that we read in Acts chapter 2. So just in a matter of days, he went from denying Jesus three times to preaching at Pentecost. When the first church exploded in just a few thousand people and spread from there. This is amazing grace and deep peace. Peter knew it well. You want to know how Peter's life ended? The Bible doesn't record this for us, but history in a number of places tells us, both in Christian records and also in secular historic records. The man known as the Apostle Peter, at the end of his life, he was arrested for preaching the gospel. He was arrested because everyone in the region was told Caesar is Lord. Everyone in the region was told that the government is Lord. Peter was going around preaching, no, Jesus is Lord. He died and rose for you. And so they arrested him. And they asked him, who is your Lord? And he said, Jesus. And they're like, hey, are you sure you want to answer that? Who is your Lord? And he says, my Lord is the risen Jesus. They asked him, who do you worship? He said, Jesus. Again, they said, wrong answer. And so they gave him a chance to recant, which is a fancy word uh, that means they gave him a chance to take it back what he said. They gave him a, a chance to deny Jesus and live. And they told him, look, deny Jesus and live, but if you fail to do that, we will crucify you just like we did your Lord. You know how Peter responded? He said, I'm not worthy to die as my Lord did, so why don't you crucify me upside down? And that's exactly what they did. He died hanging upside down on a cross for his Lord Jesus. And all the Christians, and the many of the non-Christians that would soon become Christians, that witnessed his crucifixion on that day, seeing the display of Peter's faith, proclaimed, Jesus Christ is really Lord. And on that day when Peter breathed his last death, or his last breath rather, when he breathed his last breath and closed his eyes, when Peter died, you know who he saw the next moment? He saw Jesus. He saw Jesus, and because of what we read in the scriptures, we know that likely the first thing he heard was the voice of his master and Lord Jesus saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. Look, one day your life is going to end. My life is going to end. Every single one of us, 100% mortality rate for the human species, right? And my prayer is that you will grow in what it means to love the grace and peace that is offered in Jesus before that day comes. To be sanctified by the Spirit to live like Jesus, to suffer like Jesus, and to rise on the other side of death, just like Jesus and just like Peter. And my hope and prayer is that you would also hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, I want you to look forward to that day with great and expectant faith. Let the good news of God's love for you in Christ fuel your resilient hope in every up and down season of life until you get to that day. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. 
We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.